Well, today we're going to be talking a great deal about the human heart, and that is not always a comfortable discussion. Now, I'm not talking about the physical organ that pumps blood throughout your body, but the biblical concept of the heart, the core of our inner man that drives and dictates the direction of our lives. Proverbs 4.23 speaks of this, and it says, watch over your heart with all diligence. Why? For from it, from our hearts, flow the springs of life. That sounds pretty important, doesn't it? From our heart flows the springs of life. So biblically, with our heart, we feel and we think and we believe and we doubt and we act. We're called to love God with all of our heart. We're called to trust in him with our whole heart. We're called to love others from a pure heart. We're called to speak truth from our hearts. All of these things flow. These are the springs of life that flow from our hearts. But sadly, the reality is that the fall has grossly distorted and corrupted the proper functioning of our hearts as they were designed by the creator. So Jeremiah 17, 9 which is a great companion verse, describes it very well. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Now look at those two verses side by side and it looks like a difficult problem. The heart is more deceitful than anything else, which leads me back to a question that I asked last Sunday when we talked about Psalm 51. How is it that a successful, prosperous, godly king like David fell into sexual sin? And the answer is, well, the heart is deceitful. Who can understand it? Now, not all heart cases are, are difficult to diagnose. For example, we look at the main character in the story of the prodigal son, and, and, and we can pretty much diagnose his heart, right? You probably know the story. There's a man who had two sons, and when the, the proper time had come, the younger son asked his father, for his share of the family estate, which he believed he was owed. And he had every right to ask for that, but it certainly wasn't a very loving thing to do. What did this young man want? He wanted to get as far from his family as he could, rejecting his father's guidance, and wanted to get out of town to, we used to use the phrase, to sow his oats in loose living. So what was going on in his heart? All kinds of things. And we could go around the room and we could make a long list of all the sinful desires that he was obviously looking to fulfill once he got away from his father's oversight. That's a pretty cut and dried case. But David's case is more complex, isn't it? It's more difficult to diagnose. We can certainly pinpoint, we did this last Sunday, all of the steps that he took that led to his sin with Bathsheba, all the foolish choices that, that continue to cause him to walk down that path. But I want you to consider an interesting question. Do you think David went out onto his rooftop that evening intending to sin? Did he think to himself, you know, if I go up on my rooftop now, I might see a woman bathing and that would be good. I would really like that. See, I don't think he did. I don't think that was his intent at all. And most believers that I know don't wake up in the morning intending to go out and sin. In fact, quite the opposite. They hope and they pray that they will live obediently and wisely for God's glory. But then the day begins and life happens and all kinds of things come at them. And very quickly, they're tested. They're tested in their hearts by all kinds of 
things that suddenly rush upon them and they struggle with things like anger and worry and impatience and yes, lust and hatred and jealousy and selfishness and more. And in those moments, the kingdom of self displaces the kingdom of God in their thoughts, in their feelings, and in the way that they're responding to these things coming at them, the ways of the world, other people. And very quickly, all those good intentions that they began the day with, they go flying right out the window and they're displaced by something else. The fact of the matter is most believers are not familiar with the hidden depravities that lie in the deep chambers of their hearts. And the degree to which you're surprised by how you respond in this world to these outside pressures is the degree to which you don't know what's really going on in the deepest parts of your heart. And perhaps you haven't done the necessary work, the study and the prayer to address the false beliefs and the fleshly desires that are present deep inside. Things that, if the wrong circumstances were to come, would suddenly leak out of your heart and take over. And I think that's David's story. He had no intention of meeting Bathsheba on that fateful morning. But because of the sinful motivations of his heart, which he had not addressed, and that's key, when he saw her, the desires of his personal kingdom became all that mattered. He was unprepared. He was, his heart was unaddressed in the deepest places. And so all of his best of intentions went, boop, see ya. And he said, this is now about my personal kingdom. I will have this. Just to give a simple modern day example, because that one's kind of extreme, right? Consider the case of a good Christian man who goes to church. He's a member of his church. He loves the Lord. He knows what the scriptures say about worry and about his finances. He knows that God is sovereign he knows that God promises to provide for his people, but then things in his household start to come undone. And suddenly his job becomes unstable. Maybe his family loses a side income that they've been relying upon. Maybe a medical cost or a car cost rises up and it, 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 it threatens to ruin his financial situation. And what, what suddenly leaks out of his heart in that situation? Remember, this is a Christian man. He knows what the Bible says. What leaks out of his heart? Fear of failure, worry about loss of material possessions, anxiety over an unknown future, maybe bitterness because he realizes that if he fails, his reputation is at stake. And then even worse things leak out. He grows angry at other people, angry at his circumstances. Even those within his family, he can begin to point fingers. He begins to doubt God's goodness. He falsely wonders why he has to endure this trial. He wonders, why doesn't anybody else seem to care about me? And his spiritual walk begins to tank. This is a good Christian man who goes to church, who knows what the Bible says. And yet all these things leak out of him when the pressure comes. So our hearts are complex. We have surface commitments and affections that are spirit-led. They're good. We learn about them every Sunday in church but then there are those deeper wants and desires. And these things have been described as the flesh residue that is left over from our life prior to being born again. These are things that we need to continually strive to put off in our walk with Christ. And these things are at war within us. Galatians 5 confirms this. There's a war within the believer. Paul says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. 
For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. It's a battle. And then to complicate things, we all employ certain strategies to deal and to cope with our sin. We fall into sin, right? We didn't intend to, but things come at us. We fall into sin, and what do we do? We feel regret. We feel bad about what we've done. We wrestle with guilt and shame, but then we go, I don't know what to do now. I just feel bad. I don't know how to win this war that you see on the screen. So what do we do? Sometimes we just say, I'm going to ignore that altogether. I'm going to magically hope that that goes away. It's a bad strategy. Sometimes we just hide from it. We lie about it. Sometimes we just stubbornly refuse to repent. We just say, I'm not going to repent over that. Secretly, I really want that. And all that does is harden our hearts all the more. And then sometimes we're just self-deceived. As I said last Sunday, sometimes we're just blind to our own blindness. We don't even realize all the ways that we're sinning against God, all the ways we're hurting other people. So it's complex. The heart is more deceitful than anything else. Who can understand it? So grab your Bibles. We're going to talk more about this from Psalm 51. Can anybody identify with what I just said? This is life, right? All right, as we saw last week, Psalm 51 begins with a superscription, right? That gives us the specific historical context in which David is writing. It says this, For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba, and we joked about how, man, how would you like to have your worst sin put to music? Here, Mr. Choir Director, write about my sin. I shared that story, by the way, the background from 2 Samuel 11 and 12. If you, if you missed that, that's incredibly important to understand, so go back and listen online if you happen to miss it. Let's read our five verses from last Sunday's message just to refresh our memories. Verse one, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. So we, we talked about sort of a handful of principles that we drew from this. Let me just really quickly uh, recap some of these because this is such an important prayer for us to examine. First principle, you see here David pleading for God's grace and mercy, period. Nothing else, right? He doesn't, he doesn't make excuses. He doesn't appeal to the law or to, to his own merit or to God's justice because he can't. He is flat out guilty and he understands that. He understands what he deserves. He knows that if God condemned him, God would still be holy and just and blameless in that. He's, he's at the end of his resources, right? This is, this, Lord, I'm splayed open before you. I need your mercy. Second thing, David's not shy about listing the completeness of his sin. He uses three specific words. He says, I have iniquity, I have transgression, and I have sin. Third principle, knowing that Yahweh in his nature is both gracious and compassionate, 
he then talks about those three types of sin and says, I need them to be dealt with in three ways. He says, Lord, blot them out, wash me thoroughly, and cleanse me. And then number four, he accepts full responsibility. No blame shifting. I know my transgressions. They are always before me. There's no attempt here to minimize what he'd done. And finally, number five, he acknowledges the origin of his sin. Where did this come from? Well, I'm, I'm a child of Adam, born under the fall. So this sinful nature that came out in me in this moment when I saw Bathsheba is actually part of my very nature that needs to be dealt with. So friends, these are really important principles for all of us to see and acknowledge because they all inform our prayer lives as we deal with sin in our lives. So let's continue now with our text for the morning. David continues in this prayer, verse six. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. All right, let's break this down just a bit. And as we do this, consider your own heart. Consider the sins that you wrestle with and how David's prayer here might be a model for your life. It all starts where I started this morning in the deep parts of the human heart. Look at David's heart language in verse six. He says, behold, you desire truth, or that word can be uh, interpreted integrity, where? In the innermost being, at the deepest parts. This is what you want, Lord, truth and integrity. And in the hidden parts, you will make me know wisdom. And some translations say, in the secret heart, deep within, you will teach me your wisdom. So here David is going below the surface. He's appealing to God concerning his fall into sexual sin and, and the avalanche of sins that followed that. And he's asking the question, who am I really on the inside? In the innermost parts, who am I? In the deep, secret parts of my heart, who am I? I know this, I'm not who I want to be. I know that I'm not who I should be. But I need to understand what drove this in my life. And we need to understand what drives us in the sin that we struggle with. I realize that I need more than just a surface level reform, Lord, because there's a part of me that's obviously twisted and I can't fix it. I can't fix it. Lord, I need you to go there because I know that you, as my creator, as my God, as my savior, you desire truth and honesty and integrity and righteousness in your children, and you want to reveal wisdom to us in the deepest parts of our heart. This is a beautiful acknowledgement on David's part, isn't it? And then in verse seven, we see him going back to the language of cleansing, just as he did in verse two. Purify me with hyssop, and I, I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And this is, 
This is something that we, under the new covenant, don't always understand, but he's specifically talking about ceremonial purity here. This is part of the ritualism of the Old Testament, Israel. The hyssop plant is an herb that in ancient times would be gathered in bunches and it would be used both for medicinal reasons but also for religious purposes. And it looks like this. That's what a hyssop plant looks like. You can actually order it on Amazon today. (laughs) I mean, it's still around in bunches. But it's found several places in the Old Testament in very specific places. And it's very instructive to what David is saying in Psalm 51. First of all, you find it in the purification ritual that was given to Moses and Aaron in the book of Numbers. The hyssop was used like a bunch of it was used like a brush. It'd be dipped in water and then sprinkled on things that needed to be cleansed. On people, on on the tents, on furnishings. In Leviticus 14, it was used in a special ritual for the, for the cleansing of somebody that had been cured from a skin disease like leprosy and it involved a blood sacrifice. And then the hyssop would be dipped in that blood and it would be sprinkled seven times on the person who had been, been, been cured. And then he would be declared clean by the priests. But most importantly, hyssop was used in the Passover ritual. If you didn't know this, this is a really interesting little tidbit. Hyssop was what was used to brush the blood on the doorposts of the Israelite homes in Egypt so that the angel of death would pass over. The blood of what? The slaughtered Passover lamb. And so throughout the Old Testament, this hyssop is linked to both cleansing and to blood sacrifice. And so here in Psalm 51, this is what David is asking for. He says, I want utter and complete ceremonial washing." And you see in this, obviously, this foreshadowing of a future New Testament fulfillment, pleading for the great high priest to sprinkle him with the blood of the lamb and declare him cleansed from all sin. And the Hebrew word used here for purify in the New American Standard or purge in other translations is actually the verb form of the Hebrew word for sin, chatah. For sin. So get this. Literally, what David is saying is, Lord, de-sin me. That's what he's asking for. De-sin me. Purge my heart of sin entirely. Don't just clean up the outside. That's not what I need. Be a high priest to me. Sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on me so that I will be thoroughly spotless. And David knows. And here's what he's saying: I can't do this. David sounds very New Testament many times in Psalm 51. He's not like, I need more sacrifices or I need more of this or that. He says, I cannot fix this problem in the depths of my heart. I can't cleanse myself. I'm fully dependent on God to to do this work. So if you, Lord, purify me with hyssop, then I will be clean, he says. He states it emphatically. I will be clean if you do this work. If you wash me, even though the stain of my sin is as red as scarlet, he says, if you wash me, I will be white as snow. But I can't do it. Only you have the power. And when you stop to consider the heinous nature of David's sins, not just adultery, but murder, this is a great statement of faith. Many of us would be crushed by the weight of this guilt, right? But he says, by faith, I know if I confess, if I repent of this, if you wash me, it can be completely blotted out. Very New Testament, isn't it? Now, as we move on to this key verse, and we're going to jump to verse 10, 
I want you to see the movement and the progression of David's prayer. So he started with, first of all, looking at the heart. Then he moved to cleansing language. Now he's going to talk about restoration. In other words, his prayer doesn't end with just repentance. It moves on to newness. And that is a very important principle for us. Even in biblical counseling, we talk about putting things off. We always talk about what? Putting on other things, right? It's not just repentance, but it's moving on to newness. It's, Lord, I want to change. I want to live differently. And so by the same grace that you saved me, make me new. To walk in newness of life with you. That's the good news of the gospel. It doesn't stop with pardon, as amazing as that is. But for his children, God not only wants to blot out our sins, but he wants to write a new story in the place of those sins. He wants to replace what is broken with what is pleasing to him. And so David pleads in verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. And that is a radical renewal request on David's part. And why do I say radical? Because the Hebrew word that David uses here, bara, is the same verb used in Genesis 1-1 to describe the creation of the universe. Oh, that's interesting, right? The same word. It's as if he's saying, Lord, just as you brought light out of the darkness way back when in the beginning, now replace the ugliness within my heart with a brand new heart. Wow. He's asking for a creation miracle here. This is something that only God can do. This isn't just a makeover. It is a full replacement. Make me new. It's a radical request. And again, you hear more New Testament foreshadowing here, right? Um, Ezekiel will talk about it. Jeremiah will talk about it. I will give you a new heart, God says. I will give you a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. God promises that through the prophets of the Old Testament, and then we see it come true in the New Testament, this idea of newness of heart. Now, notice David doesn't ask for the power to create the new heart himself. This is important. He doesn't say, hey, Lord, give me five steps that I can do to bring about inward change in my life. You, you give me the steps, and then I'll make it happen. He doesn't do that. He says, Lord, you create a new heart in me because I can't do it. And there's a huge difference between those two things, Right? Between what David says here and what is often peddled in therapy today, where you're given a whole bunch of steps, and if you just do these things, then you'll be responsible to create lasting inward change. But this kind of radical hard work has to be done by God, by the Spirit of God. If it's going to last, if it's going to endure, if it's going to produce actual fruit, then God has to do this work. Don't forget that. Verse 10 continues, And renew a steadfast spirit within me, Again, this is an important acknowledgement on David's part. Once he's been washed and cleansed each and every day, sometimes moment by moment, we also need to ask the Lord to produce in us the power of a steadfast spirit. Right? We don't just stop at the pardon. We say, Lord, I need this each and every day, a steadfast spirit. Why? So we don't allow those depravities of the heart to drift back in. So we don't end up repeating the same sins over and over again. And that Hebrew word for steadfast means to be immovable, to be firmly established and immovable. So Lord, cleanse me, give me a new heart, and then grant me a disposition that is immovable. Again, we can do that to some extent. We can really try hard. I'm not going to move, Lord. But you know what? The heart is deceitful. And who can understand it, right? So we need God to do this work. 
right? Lord, cause me to persevere on this path of wisdom and godliness so that I don't end up again having sinned against you and again hurting the same people around me. I need a steadfast spirit. This, this is what we call a true commitment to repentance. This is not just some quickie confession. This is what we like to do as Christians. I sin, I feel bad, I do a quickie confession, and then I move on with my life. David is sweating over this. He is striving in this. He's determined not to fall back into sinful patterns. And so we depend on the Lord day by day, moment by moment, and we keep Keep coming back with this prayer. Give me a steadfast spirit, Lord. Now, I want to start talking about the restoration phase. Let me take a break real quick. If, if already you're like, man, this sounds really daunting. This whole, Jeff, are you, are you talking about a life of repentance? An actual, just habitual, regular life of repentance? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's what's required. And it's good. And it's good. But if it sounds miserable to you, I read this great article this week, a really honest blog post from a Christian author, and maybe this will resonate with your heart, but wait till the end. Here's what he wrote. He says, I can remember the first time I heard Luther's famous statement about repentance. And here's the statement. When our Lord Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. And while others around me offered solemn nods, a less sacred thought flashed across my mind. Well, that doesn't sound like much fun. Uh, honesty, right? He says, I knew the repentant life was good for me, just like I knew going to the dentist was good for me. But I didn't look forward to a life of feeling bad about myself. My childlike faith heard this. The Christian life is one of sitting in the corner, muttering apologies. Necessary? Maybe. Exciting? Not at all. My life of repentance so far had been the same somber note on repeat. Whenever I felt an elevated sense of my own sin, I threw myself into a deep pit of penance. Like Jonah, I marked myself guilty and consented to being cast into the sea. Or like the prodigal, I made my long return home, rehearsing how unworthy I was to be his son and how I had to be treated as a hired hand. Listen to what he writes. I deserved despair. I wouldn't, I couldn't pursue happiness because I had sinned. I needed to serve my time before I could freely smile again. But then the article shifts gears and he says this. He says, here's the key. He says, I did not know. Indeed, I'm still learning about the joyful life of repentance. Does that describe you? You see your life of repentance as one of joy. You, is the battle that we're fighting against sin, is it a worthy battle? Is it something that we can battle joyfully? Because it should be. Because salvation and joy are designed to go together. It's not to be miserable. Because even in the battle in our hearts with sin, if we're walking with and abiding in Christ the one who loves us, who desires to be at the center of that battle because he knows what's going on, we can find joy in that struggle. We can find joy there. And all the more so when we begin to see that bringing him into it and abiding with him in that struggle actually produces by his spirit victories in Christ. There is nothing more exciting that I have found in my Christian walk 
than seeing victory over sin. But if I don't bring him into it, that's not going to happen. I'm only going to have temporary gains and then fallbacks. But when we abide with him in that and we say, Lord, I'm in a battle, I, we bring him into it and then we get victory, there's nothing better. So now, in verse 12, David, who's longing for fellowship with Yahweh, once again, he brings this very important request before him. Look at verse 12. He says, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I want to have joy in this. Look, I have sinned greatly. I don't deserve mercy, but you're a merciful God. And it's been hard. I've been crushed by this. Now, Lord, I need your grace even more. I need joy. Restore that joy. David felt crushed, right? You heard it in, when Adam read the call to worship this morning from Psalm 32. David says, my body wasted away when I didn't talk to God about my sin. He groaned all day long. His vitality was drained away. Why? He says in Psalm 32, because God's hand was heavy upon him. He was wrestling. In verse 8, if you look in verse 8 of this morning psalm, David says that this process felt so severe that his, he felt like his bones were broken. He felt this weight of sin all the way down to his bones. But look how he says it. Bones which you, Lord, have broken. And God will do that sometimes to get your attention about habitual sin. He was crushed. He was feeling the weight. And listen, I, I don't know about you, but, but I've experienced this in my walk with the Lord. In case you were feeling like I'm the only one in this room who's gone through this before, you're not. We've all been in this battle. There have been times when I was just miserable with my walk with Jesus, feeling defeated constantly, lacking a sense of fullness and joy, feeling that dryness, right? That dryness, that lack of passion for the things of God. We've all been there. But when that happens, it's usually not hard to diagnose. You know why? Because he never moves away from us. We move away from him. And so we need to examine ourselves, right? We displace him and his kingdom with ourselves and our kingdom, and that's that's when we are at heart of, are at risk of letting our hearts leak out in all kinds of sinful ways. And then if we don't deal with it, 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 it snowballs, doesn't it? And the more we don't deal with it, that snowball gets bigger to the point where now going back to God just sounds awful. It just sounds miserable. The fact is, sin and disobedience will cause a break in your fellowship with God, and your joy will dissipate. That's part of the discipline process of a loving father. Get that right. A loving father will bring that about. But it's also true that joy can be regained. That's what we learn here in Psalm 51. When we embrace the life of repentance and we return to him time and time again, that joy can be regained. That's what David pleads for here. Lord, you've removed my guilt. You've blotted out my record. You have washed me clean. Now, Lord, let me be glad. Grant me the incomparable joy of intimate fellowship with you once again. And what does God, how does God respond to that? Come here. Right? Do you have that picture? Come here. That's how he responds. David goes on in verse 11. Don't cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. This is another way that David was expressing his dependence. Please, Lord. Do not leave me, 
For a child of God, this is the greatest horror you could ever fathom, that God would remove his presence from you. Can you imagine? Now, the likely background to this fear comes out of the story of Saul, right? In 1 Samuel 16, when it says that God had rejected King Saul and the spirit of God had departed from him. And that put the fear of God, literally, in David. Don't do that to me, Lord. Please don't take your presence from me. I cannot live without you. That's that desperate need for God that we should all have. But know this, that was a situation unique to the Old Testament when the spirit of God was given only temporarily, right, to enable certain tasks to be done by certain individuals, King Saul, King David, they were given an anointing from the Lord in order to lead Israel. But this changes with the coming of the new covenant, as we know, right? The the spirit now permanently indwells believers for the purpose of guiding us, for the purpose of illuminating truth, for the purpose of convicting of sin. So what is David's concern here? Remember, he's the king of Israel. Lord, please, if you take your presence from me, how will I lead this people? How can I possibly lead your nation without your spirit? He needs that anointing. So that's what he has in mind here. Do not withdraw your anointing so that I can continue to serve you as king. And then finally, verse 13, and this is sort of a capstone on the process that David is walking through. Verse 13, then I will teach you trans, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. So cleanse me, Lord, wash me, restore my joy, and then I can show others what you've done. I can then point and bear witness to your greatness. Now, the word converted here is the same word in verse 12 that was translated restored, so I'm not a big fan of the New American Standard here. I think the the CSB gets it right because what David is talking about is I want to bear witness to people just like me who need to be restored. So the CSB gets it right. It says, then I will teach the rebellious, like me, your ways, and sinners will be restored to you or returned to you. That's what David wants. He's like, Look, as I walk through this process, and it's been long, and it's been arduous, right? But then at the end of it, I want to see fellow rebellious sinners just like me return to you to experience what I am now experiencing with confession and repentance and with joy, and then go on to become faithful servants in the kingdom. Why? Because I've been restored to fellowship with my Lord. See, sometimes we feel like because we've sinned, we can't be used anymore. That's not true. The reality, when you've learned to turn from your sin, when you've acknowledged and confessed your sin, when you're a recipient of God's grace, man, can God use you. More than ever, did you hear me say that? More than ever, he can use you. He can use you to teach others not to go down that road that caused you to feel the weight and the pain of bones broken your vitality being wasted away. Don't, look, I've been down that road. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Then God can use you. That's really the key to effective spiritual work. If you want to serve as a witness to others, if you want to teach others how to walk with the Lord, then you need a testimony of one who is living in this pattern of confession, repentance, and joy. If you want to teach others. And if God has done that work in your life, then you do have a story to tell. So tell of his goodness and his grace. That's what David's saying. That's what I ultimately want to do, Lord, as you've restored me, is to tell others about how good you are. 
So let's review the steps now as we close. Let's look at the, the progression of David's pleading here in this, so far in this psalm. Cleanse me. Make me new. Restore my joy. Strengthen me. And then put me to good use for your glory and for your kingdom. That is a, a great progression and a model for us in our prayer lives, in our life of repentance. And so let me come back to where we started this morning, to the challenges that we all have in the deep parts of our hearts. I would exhort you guys to do some work in both study and prayer this week, to ask the Lord to search your heart and to reveal some things to you. What are those surface commitments that you have that are likely to fly out the window as soon as pressure comes against you? What are those things? And then what are the deeper things and the recesses of your heart that are likely to leak out and displace those things on the surface of your heart? We talk about this in discipleship and counseling all the time. It's one thing to look at the act. It's a whole other thing to then to go a level deeper and then say, oh, that's interesting. Let's go a level deeper and let's get to the root of the problem because that's where actual healing comes. So ask God, search my heart. Show me these things in the deep. Ask him to reel sinful motivations that reside there and then commit to start the process of examining those places with him. With him. As a Christian who has a desire to grow, there is no substitute for doing this kind of work. In study, in prayer, that's your work, but then also perhaps grabbing somebody that you trust, a discipler, a biblical counselor, somebody who can help you work through those things. And to say, man, I, it's time I dealt with these things. The Lord is making me understand more why I react the way I do, why I desire the things that I desire. I need some help here. Ask somebody. And as God shows you more and more of the ugly things inside your heart, we all have them. It's okay. We have them. Don't turn away from them. Don't ignore them. Own them. Confess them before the Lord. Ask him to cleanse you and ask him to make you new. Turn your request towards restoration, towards a new filling of the Holy Spirit, to greater strength and steadfastness and to joy. And to joy in that. To embrace that life of the battle. Embrace that life of repentance. And then you can go out and tell other people about how amazing God's grace is. And in all of this, I want you to know this, in all of this battle, if you belong to Christ, you are loved. This is one of the things that I got twisted up early in my walk with God. I thought God was 24-7 angry with me. I just, he, he, he has got to be just an angry father who is far off and says, I don't love Jeff anymore. He's too dirty for me to look at. I want you to know, if you belong to Christ, you're loved. You're loved. Know that God doesn't stand far off in a posture of anger towards you, but he does want better for you. He wants better for you. He longs for you to return to him, to the place of forgiveness and healing. That's what he wants. He wants you to experience the fullness of his blessing. And yes, the joy of abiding with him in a consistent pattern of repentance. He wants that for you. And this is ultimately the story of the prodigal son, right? This foolish young man who leaves his father in a rush to sin, 
got to get out of town, man. I hate this little place. And he goes off to a distant country and he squanders everything that he brought with him, right, on fast living. He thought it would satisfy, but it didn't, did it? Learn that from that little parable. It doesn't satisfy. Soon he finds himself short on everything, money, food, and out of desperation, what does he do? He hires himself out to a Gentile, (laughs) feeding pigs, deplorable for a Jew, right? And he begins to realize, he looks at these animals and he's like, they actually have it better off than me. At least they're eating. And it says, he came to his senses and he began to think about his home and about his father. And he knew that's where he would find hope again. I knew I wasn't going to do well with this. It's a picture of the Lord looking at a sinner, looking at a sinner moving towards repentance and longing to have him come back in fellowship. And so the young man commits to owning his sin, doesn't he? He will return, but he says, I'm going to give up my rights as a son. I don't deserve it. I'll just be a servant. That'll be enough. I have no right to ask for his blessing. I'll just do a life of service. And so returning home, the prodigal son is prepared to just do one thing, and that's to fall at his father's feet and beg for mercy. And what's the father doing all this time? Watching. Watching for his son who he loves. In fact, it says, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he did something that no Jewish man would ever do. He ran towards his son and he embraced him and he kissed him. And so the returning son begins his speech about how I don't deserve it. And the father says, stop. And he begins to honor his son. He says, bring out the best ring and the best robe and let's let's kill the calf and let's celebrate with a feast because my son is back and fellowship is restored. It's an amazing thing to consider how God stands ready to welcome a child like you or me when we return to him. And not just to say you're forgiven, but to throw a party, to, be, to celebrate your return. Not only are we forgiven in Christ, but we receive this spirit of adoption to, to sonship. Instead of condemnation, there is rejoicing because my son who is dead has come back to life, who was lost but now has been found. And that's David's story too. No less than 18 times in this psalm, David pleads with God, have mercy on me, purify me, wash me, cleanse me, create in me, renew me, uphold me, sustain me, deliver me. In other words, he does the same thing the prodigal did. He just throws himself at the feet of his father and begs for mercy. And the Lord The Lord, knowing David completely, knowing his heart, knowing all of the sins that he will commit, says what of David? That is a man after my own heart. Are you kidding me? That is a man after my own heart. How can that be, you say? God said it. And so maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're exhausted from your sin. You're tired of hiding 
You're tired of playing games with God. You're sick of not having any joy in your Christian walk. And so the hope in studying Psalm 51 is that you'll come to the place where David ended up, that you'll come to where the prodigal son ended up, that you'll humble yourself enough to come home where your father waits with open arms, where there's a ring for you and a robe for you and a celebration for you because another sinner has repented and been washed by the blood of the lamb. Just come home and then keep coming home over and over and over again. God will never tire of that. Reclaim the joy of fellowship with the Father. Reclaim the joy of abiding with Christ and the joy of knowing that your sins are forgiven, that you've been washed clean. Remember what Adam read this morning, how blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. You are blessed, so come home. Let's bow our heads. Lord, these, these passages that speak to our hearts about the truth of who we are, both in terms of our struggle with sin, but also in terms of our, our sonship. These are, these are difficult passages, Lord. And so sometimes it's hard for us to reconcile all of these things with the walk that each one of us has right now. God, I, I just I want to ask you by your grace and by your mercy that you, by your spirit, would do a great work in everybody who can hear my voice this morning. That we would not be afraid of this, that we would not be reticent in coming to you and, and dealing with our heart issues. Behold, you want truth in our innermost being. So help us to seek that out, Lord. Help us to return to you if we've been often a distant country. If we've fallen into sin, Lord, to know that we have a father who loves us, who wants to help us work through those things and to make us new and to, to create in us a clean heart. God, help us to embrace the life of repentance and to find joy in that because we're walking and abiding with you. Thank you for this passage, Lord. And thank you, thank you for your spirit and the work that he wants to do in our, in our hearts. Be glorified now, even as we sing your praises, Lord. Let it come from the deepest place in our hearts as we recognize your goodness and your grace. In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen.